Well, it's good to have you here this morning. Uh, if you're newer with us, my name is Brian. Uh, privileged to be part of the pastoral team here as well as to bring you today's message. And uh, I know you just sat down like 17 seconds ago, uh, but I'm going to invite you uh, actually to stand up both here in the West as well as in the East Auditorium for, uh, yeah, go ahead and stand for uh, what is actually a tradition uh, in many uh, traditions of the church, and that is to stand for the reading of God's word. And uh, the reason uh, we want you to do this today is uh, this particular uh, passage that we're going to be looking at uh, in the words of one theologian is, quote, uh, we need to exercise, he says, the mental equivalent of taking off our shoes for this passage is holy ground. And uh, it is arguably, even though this passage comes from the Old Testament, arguably the single best chapter to explain to us what actually took place at the cross. And so hear the word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 53, verses one through six. It says, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen. With that, you may be seated, both in the east as well as here in the west. And as you do, I'd invite you to um, actually turn to that passage as we're going to be uh, looking further into it uh, in your Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible with you today, you should be able to find one in the pew rack in front of you. And in the East Auditorium, there's some shelves off to the side where you can grab a Bible as well. They won't mind if you get up. It's fine. Um, and uh, go ahead and turn that. And if you don't have a Bible uh, of your own at all, that you don't own one, then we would invite you to take that, uh, please, as a gift from us to you. It's not even a Christmas present. It's just, that's just how we do things. You just take it. Uh, so... Uh, Isaiah 53, that's what we're going to be looking at. As uh, Actually, we've been working our way through the book of Isaiah throughout the month of December as uh, we've been looking at really a, a, a book that in its original context was written first to uh, the people of Judah who were facing uh, at the time nationwide exile uh, at the hand of the Assyrians. And in the midst of this great distress, Judah was longing for a Messiah, a savior who would come and rescue them uh, with military power, rescue them from their oppressors. And so what Isaiah reveals uh, in this passage, again, that we just read, and uh, again, as we're gonna examine further here this morning in our time together, that yes, a Messiah will indeed come, but he will come in a power that actually surpasses that of any militant force and to conquer an enemy even greater than the Assyrians. And so what we're going to look at today applies not only to Judah back then uh, in that day, in that place, but also now to us right here thousands of years later. 
And so in our time, we're gonna discover the enemy that is conquered and by what power it is overcome. Again, looking at Isaiah 53, verse one, I invite you to follow along with me as we work through this passage together. It's a powerful passage. Verse one, again, it says, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Okay, and so as you read that, that phrase, the arm of the Lord, what that represents here is God's power. The arm of the Lord means God's power. You could say it's God's big right hook, uh, as, as one boxer put it. And I don't know who to attribute this to. If you know, you can tell me. But uh, my understanding, uh, when it came to his left and to his right, uh, in order to intimidate his opponents, he would say, you want the hospital or the funeral home? <laughs> With this understanding of, uh, you know, so this, this is God's funeral home. This is God's big right hook. This is God's ultimate blow, the message that we're about to understand here in the verses that follow. And the message, by the way, that is going to be revealed, he actually says this about it. Uh, as Isaiah says, who has believed our message and to whom has this message been revealed? He is basically saying how we would say today, you are not going to believe what I'm about to tell you. In fact, you are not going to believe, you would never guess if I gave you a million guesses, the way that God is going to choose to reveal his power. You'd never guess it. And that's uh, why for evidence sake, Isaiah is prophesying, or you could say he's pre-revealing what's going to happen 700 years prior uh, in advance of the actual event. And so he's saying, verse one, spoiler alert, I'm about to give away how God's big, strong right arm is going to show itself. And so we see how that takes place beginning in verse two. So continue to follow along with me. It says, verse two, he. Actually, let's stop right there, um, which I know we didn't get very far. Telling you to read along might have been overkill, but that's okay. Because that pronoun is the most important pronoun in this whole passage, because that he, what that he is, it represents none other than Jesus Christ. It represents Jesus Christ, the coming of Jesus Christ that we celebrate, that we just celebrated at Christmas. Isaiah is revealing how the power of Christmas is going to be revealed actually 700 years again in advance of the very first Christmas even coming and even taking place. And so again, verse two, he, Jesus Christ, he, he grew up before him. It says like a tender shoot. Well, that's odd because when I think of a powerful statement uh, or the power of what Christmas is, I'm probably not going to use the words tender shoot. A tender shoot, uh, but it is. It's representing a little child um, that chose to actually, as we talk about the power of God, to be powerless. That the right arm of God would be displayed in a baby, in a manger, born to no-name parents in a nowhere town. And again, that's why Isaiah is saying, you're not going to believe the way God is going to display his power. It's in a way that you would never have expected it. And so verse two again, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. And the dry ground here is speaking to really just the difficult realities that the people uh, of Judah were facing in exile with uh, both that reality and future uncertainties. Uh, it was a tough time for them. Uh, but if we're honest with ourselves and honest with our own times, we too live in, you could say, some dry ground in our own lives, both personally and around the world. Personally, we think of, uh, particularly around Christmas, you know, relationships that are struggling. Uh, they seem particularly acute at this time of year. Or maybe you're uncertain of what employment's going to look like for you in the year of 2016. Or maybe health challenges that I know uh, dozens of stories in this congregation that we face. Uh, financial hardships, 
And so those are just some of the personal things we face. And then we look to the world around us and um, in a world that seems that's shrinking and the things that we can be exposed to as we recognize terror coming to the doorsteps of it seems like any place at any time that, that it could be within our midst. Uh, even to just overnight, we recognize just um, the dry ground, um, ironically not dry ground, but the storms and the, and the tornadoes that hit the Dallas area and throughout the southeast and now 21 are confirmed dead. And so all of it, both personal and around the world, we face dry ground of despair. But nevertheless, it goes on that there is something taking root. There is something taking root in the dry ground that we face in our lives. And it is the arm of the Lord. And so we see how this strong arm of the Lord is revealed in Jesus Christ. As verse 2 continues, it says, uh, again, ironically, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, that nothing in his appearance, his physical appearance, uh, that we should desire him. So again, it's saying, ironically, it's not going to be this outwardly visible, powerful looking person that Jesus would come looking very ordinary and unrecognizable as anything on the outside as far as his appearance to the power he would have. And then it goes on, verse 3, it talks about the even unrecognizable appearance that he would have. As it says, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and he was held in low esteem. Jesus was held in low esteem. And so in verse 3, we move past just um, his physical appearance, even past just the physical suffering that he would experience on the cross and actually the full weight of the world's sin that would be upon him as he hung on the cross and the pain that we could not understand that that is and was for him. And so that's how we see, uh, according to Isaiah, the power, the arm of the Lord being revealed. Um, But the question then still remains, uh, so what? You know, this is odd. This is an odd way for God to display his power. Um, But what does that accomplish? What does the story of Christmas and the cross, what does it actually do? What does it have to do with you, with me? Um, Why, you know, so what that Jesus came, he lived and he died. What are the implications? Um, And the answer to that, we find in the next three verses, verse four through six, it is the ultimate so what. And so let me read it to you again. It says, surely in this event, he took up our pain. He bore our suffering. And yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so if we had to understand and even sum up what we just read in verses 4 through 6, you could actually, according to John Stott, you could sum it up in a word. John Stott, he is a a premier uh, New Testament theologian of the 20th century. He was a pastor in London. Kings and queens sought him out uh, for biblical and theological insights on life. And he actually chose this word, not to sum up just this passage, but actually he said, this is the word that would sum up the entire Bible. And you wonder, man, what word would that be if, you know, this brilliant man could sum up the Bible in just one word? Would it be, you know, would it be love? Would it be grace? Maybe truth? The one word 
that he says sums up the entire Bible is the word substitute. Substitute. Now, in all candor, I don't know what you think about when you think about substitute. For me, it's not the word that sums up the entire Bible. For me, it's a little old lady who's sent to babysit my high school algebra class. And so substitute really doesn't quite do it for me uh, at first blush look. However, if we look uh, underneath what John Stott is getting at uh, and, and the full depth of what this one word encapsulates when it comes to the story of scripture and the story, story of our lives, you could paint it this way, that you could say that there are two characters at play here. There's Jesus and us in what you could say is engaging in the ultimate trade or substitution. As you, you, first of all, you have us. You have us who in our lives, we have all sinned. Uh, and if you want to define what sin is, sin is simply this. Sin is you and me. It's actually us substituting ourselves for God. Sin is when we substitute ourselves for God. It's when we put ourselves where only God should be, which is in charge. When we take God uh, out of the place of being in charge in our lives, out of being in charge of any area or every area of our life, then we are saying essentially, well, my way, my approach here is better than God's way. Uh, so simply put, anytime that you are prideful, anytime that you lie, anytime that you gossip, anytime that you slander, take down somebody else, anytime you steal, Anytime you cheat, all of it, we are saying, I'm trusting my way here. I'm trusting my approach over what God's approach would be in this situation. And so that's sin. Sin is when we substitute ourselves for God. And the scripture reveals that the consequence of that choice, the consequence of those choices, the consequence of our sin is bad news. It's punishment, it's pain, it's the suffering of the reality of what it would be like and what it is like to be separated from God, having a relationship with him both in this life and for all of eternity in hell. Yet, in response to this terrible bad news is actually the good news. The good news of what we see taking place in verse four through six. And so look at it just one more time because here's the power of the right arm of the Lord. It says, surely he, Jesus, he took up our pain. He bore what should have been our suffering, uh, that what we deserved and said he was, Jesus was punished by God. He was stricken by him and afflicted. And so we see this ultimate substitution taking place. Verse five, that he actually was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brings us peace, peace with God, both in this life and for all of eternity was on him and by his wounds, we are healed. Because the truth is, again, verse six, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each and every one of us has turned to our own way. Again, sin defined, we have all at times and at times and will at times substitute our way for God's way. Each of us has turned, it says, to our own way. But Romans 5 says that yet, even while we are still sinners, even in the midst of us messing it up, Isaiah 53 verse 6 continues that the Lord nevertheless laid upon him the iniquity. And that word iniquity, it's just another word for sin, literally means brokenness. Laid upon him our sin and our brokenness, the iniquity of us all. And this being one of the most powerful passages in all scripture, something that's worthy of standing up for, um, I think we often, uh, maybe not in a sermon, but in the living of our lives, miss the weight 
of this reality. Um, and to try to illustrate how I think this happens, um, here recently, Pastor Wayne and I and a couple other staff members uh, are, were part of this leadership cohort thing that uh, meets with uh, nine other churches around the country that gets together to learn from one another, you could say best practices for how we can more effectively reach our communities. And so most recently, uh, the gathering took place actually in Dallas uh, this past month. And the evening that we were down there, uh, we decided um, to try out one of those little like Texas hole-in-the-wall barbecue joints. Uh, it's one of those places that if you walked in without any good testimony uh, that it was a good place, you wouldn't really be confident that you'd have a positive experience because of look like a garage that served food. Um, and so we were there on good local testimony that this was a great place to eat. And so we walk in, even though it's looking kind of sketchy, and we're placing our orders. And it's kind of one of those deals where you place the, the order at the counter. And so I'm placing my order, and the cashier he asks if I'd like a drink with my order. And I say, I'll just, I'll just have water. That'll be fine for me. Thanks. To which he responds... Well, would you like bottled water or city water? <laughs> and I'm thinking, when you put it like that, you know, normally, typically, tap water is, is fine by me. But when you say it with that kind of growl in his voice, this idea that I'm wondering, like, what kind of teenage mutant ninja sewage is going to be coming out of this, uh, this tap here? And, uh, you know, I mean, a twinkle in his eye. I mean, it was literally, would you like bottled water? Then it was like Smeagol from Lord of the Rings or city water. And so I had to think twice. Do I want this potentially contaminated stuff or do I want a bottle of water? And so what this reminds me of is the reality of our own lives, that we don't think twice. We don't look, take a second look at really the reality, you could say, of the contamination that sin actually causes in our lives. Uh, that really we live and tend to think that you know, if we're not as bad as like whatever you would call the really bad people of the world, well, then we tend to think we're generally good. But that's not the reality. That's not the reality even scripture paints for us uh, in Isaiah. It goes on in a few chapters later in Isaiah 64. It says that all of us have become one, like one who is unclean. And it goes on to say that actually all of our righteous acts even are like filthy rags. And so it Isaiah the prophet's revealing is not only our sin, but even our best efforts, even when we think we do it right and give our best uh, effort at the righteous acts that we do, he says in the end, they are still even like filthy rags before the Lord because perfection, perfection is the standard of goodness and we will never measure up to perfection. We never will. And so initially this sounds, again, this sounds like terrible news, but again, let me remind you, this is actually the great news. This is the gateway to capital G, good news, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That verse four, that he, it says he took up. He took up our pain and bore our suffering. That word took up in the original Hebrew is the word nasah. And it, it means literally that Jesus took up, he removed from us and actually placed upon himself all of our sins. It means it's the ultimate substitution, that Jesus took on the pain and the suffering, not again, just of the cross, but actually of every single awful thing that humanity has ever done. And in turn, he gives us, he trades us, he gives us the credit of the perfection that Jesus actually lived. Again, the ultimate trade, the ultimate substitution, the word that sums up the whole story of our lives in Jesus Christ. 
2 Corinthians 5.21 says it this way and actually sums it up uh, quite well as well. It says, God made him who had no sin to actually be sin for us so that in him we might then become the righteousness of God. You see, this is, this is the essence of the Christian faith. This is the core of Christianity. And sadly, those I'm confident in conversations I've had with those outside of the faith, outside of the faith miss this. They miss that this is the essence of Christianity, of what has been done for them. And frankly, I think we in the church, uh, I think we know it theologically and in the context of a sermon, but again, we functionally live our lives too often missing this truth, missing that this is the essence of our Christian faith. Pastor Tim Keller, in reflecting on Isaiah 53 and reflecting how sadly we miss that this is the essence of our Christian faith, he says it this way. He says, now what is the essence of Christianity? Well, you might say, Christianity leads people to love one another. But yeah, hey, there are lots of people actually who aren't Christians who are still very loving. Well, Christianity, you could say, uh, it, it gives you strength. It gives you peace. Uh, it makes you good, you might say, is at the core. And again, at first blush, look, you read that and you're like, that sounds reasonable, that the essence of the Christian faith would be love and peace and goodness. But actually, Keller goes on to reveal how these aren't actually the core. These are results. These are overflow. These are outpourings of the essence of the Christian faith. But these things, they are not actually the core of our Christian faith. What is essential, Keller continues, the armness of Christianity. And what does this mean? It means that Jesus Christ here, he is not called, quote, the mouth of the Lord. He's called the arm of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't come to teach. He is a teacher. But he did not come primarily to tell you what to do. He came primarily to do. Did you catch that? I mean, that's the game changer. That Jesus did not come primarily just to tell us what to do. He came to do. And so what that means is that the gospel, Keller says, is news. It's good news. It's news. It's not advice. Advice says, hey, here's how you can change your life. News is this is what has happened. This is what has happened that changes your life. And Jesus Christ says, I am going to connect you to God. I have done this. And so for us, in response to this great truth, this great passage, the good news of Jesus Christ, in response to Isaiah 53, uh, that reminds us, that uh, reminds you that it's not what to do, but instead what has already been done for you, and thinking about what is the best way then that we can apply this to the living of our lives. Ironically, in considering the best, you could say, action step uh, would actually be to do nothing, you could say. That instead of going to do something, that the best thing that we could do to own this passage is actually reflect on and live in and rest in the reality of that which has already been done for us. 
I would say especially in this time of year, because this is the time of year, right? We're turning over to the new year. We're thinking about what we're going to do, goals we're going to set, what we're going to accomplish, how awesome we're going to be at something or something or whatever. And instead, we need to recognize and rest in what's awesome about the truth of our Christian faith is that which has already been done for us, uh, of how awesome Jesus Christ is and the implications of that for what our lives then look like, both now and for all of eternity. And so this week, going into the new year, and frankly, for the whole new year, I'm not saying don't get after it, don't have goals, but what if our primary goal this year was rather than to accomplish something, was to uh, recognize and live in what the Apostle Paul says, what the secret he says. He says, I learned the secret to life. I learned the secret to being content in all things. He says, I know what it's been like to reach all my goals and to have all of them fail miserably, essentially is what he says in that passage, in second, or excuse me, in uh, Philippians. Uh, but he says, I've learned the secret to life is to be content in all things because Jesus Christ and what he has already done for me, that, that his grace is enough. He says, actually, in Second uh, Corinthians 12, 9, he says, uh, I have a thorn in my flesh, he says in Second Corinthians. Um, and we don't know what that thorn is. It's a terrible pain. It could be a physical pain. It could be a relational pain. It could be a temptation he's facing. We actually don't know what that thorn in his flesh is. And that's intentional because if we knew what it was, then we'd say, oh, well, that's what he was dealing with. And then we wouldn't be able to connect to it. But the reason it's kept vague is so that we can understand that regardless of the thorn or the dry ground in our lives, that as he asked, he asked God actually three times, it says, would you take this thorn from my side? And do you know what God did? He didn't. He didn't take the thorn from his flesh. What he said is what we looked at today. My grace is sufficient for you. And so we're reminded that even in the midst of pain and suffering, struggling, as we look to Jesus Christ and his sufferings, that he has already again bore the weight of all the pain, all the suffering, and that even if things don't go our way, that in the end, his grace, the work of Christ, is actually in the long run enough. And then one more passage to reflect on. It's actually my favorite one in the whole, all the Bible. If you would say, well, Pastor Brian, what's your favorite verse in the Bible? This is it. It's um, from the book of Psalms, things you actually normally hear at uh, funerals, Psalm 23, the first verse in that. says, the Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not be in want. And the reason that's my favorite is because what that second part of that verse literally means, when it says, the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I shall not be in want, it literally means there is nothing else wanting within me, because the Lord is my shepherd is enough. And so again, May that be your reality of this week, going into the new year, and for the whole new year, that regardless of what the new year comes, that Jesus Christ and the work he has already done on your behalf, not what you are going to do or not do, is enough for you in your life, and frankly, because it's enough for all of eternity. Uh, it's the reality of the song, you might have heard it um, by Matthew West, it's called The Day After Christmas, and the lyrics go, happy day after Christmas, and Mary rests of the new year. We already talked about this in the East Auditorium a few minutes ago when I did the welcome there, but it says this, I love it. Christmas is over, but the light of the world is still here. Christmas is over, but the light of the world is still here. And so may that be for you in 2016. Let me pray for us in that. Father, your word is our word for prayer for this day. That 
what has been done for us will far exceed, will far uh, eclipse, uh, is all that matters in comparison to what we may or may not do in the days ahead. And so may we accomplish contentment. May we accomplish resting in the sufficiency of that which your son Jesus Christ has already done on our behalf. We are forgetful people. We will forget this within minutes of walking out the door. But by the power of your Holy Spirit, we know that you can actively remind us and engage us in this reality as a lens in everything we do, that you are our shepherd, and thus there is nothing else wanting within us. May it be in the name of Jesus. Amen.